to Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we do not focus on the sh new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair event here in London are just the beginning. Hello, today I'm Isabel Lopez and I'm joined by James, uh, Janet Gunter and Neil. Thank you for joining. Uh, and we'll be discussing our reading list of the year. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> in the office we've been assembling our favorite, um, basically, geek and otherwise books. Um, there's, there's a geek element to every single one of these books, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have, we're going to talk about... Uh, We're going to talk about four, well, four plus books today. Yeah, so. very different also. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> To start, um, I guess we're going to talk about a book that I saw first advertised on the tube. I don't know if anybody else saw these, um, this advert, but there's this gigantic posters for this book. This is called Factfulness. Um, And at first I was like, oh, God, it's probably some book about, you know, fake news or something. I kind of switched off. But then I realized that it's by Hans Rowling with Ola Rosling and Anna Rosling, Rosling Runlund, who are Hans Rowling himself was a very famous. Um, I guess he was a medical doctor who became famous for his approach to uh, global development and health data and the. This book is not at all about fake news. It's about basically everything that we don't really know about the state of the world. Um, that's because we get so much bad news and so much poverty porn, as it were. Um, we don't actually have a real notion for how, how people on Earth are living in terms of their health care, their material conditions. And so the subtitle of the book is 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Now, <laughs> the timing of the book may be a bit unfortunate, and um, Hans Rowling sadly uh, died last year, um, quite young. Um, he was in his 60s, I believe. Um, but this was his last project. He, he spent a lot of time writing this book with, I, I believe, with his family members who co-authored it. Yeah. And he, the book, I guess, is intended to precisely um, unpack some of these um, Uh, just stuff, things about the world that we don't know. And he has a quiz where he asks the reader to answer some very basic questions about the state of the world, um, about life expectancy, about um, public health indicators, about even gender equality. Um, and it is really interesting because even I feel like I'm a fairly you know, clued in person on some of this. And I even caught myself with some potentially um, negative Um, stereotypes or answers and he makes you feel better as a reader because he tells he shows the results of this quiz in all of these you know different elite institutions so with at Davos with uh, UN uh, workers with media and across the board people think life on earth is worse than it actually is in terms of the basic human indicators about health and things like that mm. So that's a really interesting um, finding, and it kind of lets you off the hook as a reader. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing I like about this book is that he, he basically tells us, look, the reason you think that is because your vision of the world is 30 years old. And he has a new vision of the world. He kind of, he creates, instead of rich and poor, he creates these uh, different levels of, of income. And, and he 
paints a picture for what life is like on these different levels. So it turns out that only one billion people live on his level one, which is you know under $2 a day and extremely poor and fragile conditions, but that we have a full five billion people living on level two and level three. Um, so people living between two and $32 a day in terms of their income. And so the implications of that are really interesting, um, obviously to understand how people leave poverty and you know, the material lives that they, that they lead and what are the factors that help people um, leave level one. Um, there's so much to go into here. <laughs> but I, I guess from our perspective as Restart, like we're interested in the way people consume things and the way we live on Earth. Um, he, has a, he has a really provocative point for those of us living on what he calls level four. So, which is basically everybody listening. We're, we're earning probably over $32 a day, although not everybody in this society. And he points that out. Um, but he kind of asks, you know, how is it that we can ask people on these other levels to live differently or to consume less? And this is a really important and provocative point. He doesn't really get at, from my perspective, how we can all eventually live a good standard of living on earth like in other words how many washing machines should we have you know how what kind of life should we have but he starts to provoke so i thought guys is it okay if i read a little bit yes yeah, sure. okay. <laughs> it is a reading yeah. show um i like he also has a really good talk on this on youtube so if you're listening and you want to get into this it's his it's his piece about washing machines so he says i was four years old when i saw my mother load a washing machine for the first time it was a great day for my mother. She and my father had been saving money for years to be able to buy that ma machine. Grandma, who'd been invited to the inauguration ceremony for the new washing machine, was even more excited. She had been heating water with firewood and hand-washing laundry her whole life. Now she was going to watch electricity do that. So he talks about Sweden's uh, development trajectory, too, from like what we would consider like a poor economy to the present. And he kind of asks us, he says when he gets more into this question of how we should live, he says, let's be realistic about what the 5 billion people in the world who still wash their clothes by hand are hoping for and what they will do, sorry, and what they will do everything they can to achieve. Expecting them to voluntarily slow down their economic growth is absolutely unrealistic. They want washing machines, electric lights, decent sewage systems, a fridge to store food, glasses if they have poor eyesight, insulin if they have diabetes, and a transport to go on vacation with their family, just like you and I. Mm -hmm. So this book is super provocative, I think. It's a, re it's a really good point about how can we, if, if us in level four, how could we ask people in other levels to potentially change their way of living, when really it should be the other way around, that people in level four should be changing like our way of living. We shouldn't have quite so many um, possessions. We, couldn't, we shouldn't be consuming quite so rapaciously. I think another thing he draws attention to is actually that um, that basic services are what pull people out of poverty in the other levels, and that if we are continuing to cut away at basic human services like healthcare and transport, in 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 our supposedly level four economy, what are the implications for all of us? So he's really provocative on that. Um, he does bring up climate change and you know the implications of consumption, but I think he's not interested in telling anyone 
at least um, at least in the levels beneath our level four to, mm-hmm. to change. And so I think it's 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 a good provocation, although I think you could write probably three or four books in a response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like more descriptive than actually saying this is what we have to do. But this is a provocation in itself, thinking it's, how are we understanding mm-hmm. the world, how are we understanding the problems or yeah, yeah or, or what level should each of us live? Yeah, so Done. definitely look up Hans Rolling on YouTube if you want to see more of him. He was an excellent speaker and performer, so definitely look him up. Don't just read his book. Yeah, he has some great <laughs> TED talks. Yes, to watch. I was going to yeah. say. <laughs> okay, yeah. and moving on, Neil, you have another. You have a potentially even more provocative and fun book. <laughs> I, do, I would say probably more fun than provocative. Yeah, so I've got uh, it's Thing Explainer by Randall Munro. So, and the subtitle for this is Complicated Stuff in Simple Words. Um, so you might have heard of Randall Munro already. He's quite well known from uh, the kind of nerdy, geeky webcomic XKCD, uh, which is pretty popular, kind of discussing, um, think, you know, it's described as discussing romance, sarcasm, math and language. So it's quite a popular nerdy webcomic. I would say an outer space as well. Space, yeah. <laughs> uh, programming, it covers all yeah. kinds of techie topics. Um, so Randall Munro is an interesting character. So his background was as a physicist. Um, he studied physics at university, I believe, and then he went on to do contract work uh, as a roboticist at NASA. Then he put all that behind him and then went full time into a career as a, a, a webcomic artist. <laughs> yeah, usual, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> usual career directory. Um, and so XKCD is a brilliant comic. There's a couple of uh, two of them which are brilliant for repairers. A couple of my favourites. So. There's one called um, How Well Something Works After I Decide to Fix It. So this is a cool graph where it's, it kind of branches off and it tells you uh, basically so you've, when you're, you're trying to repair something, the state of the device that you're repairing over time. So on the x-axis, you've got um, what state the device is in. On the y-axis, you've got like how long you've been working on it, from like zero to five hours. And so at the beginning, you start with things like, oh, I just need cleaning. Brilliant. Uh, And then you go through into the middle, like after two hours or so, you get to things like, well, at least it's not broken. It's not more broken than it was when I started. <laughs> I think we've all been there. Yeah. Um, take a deep breath and cut wires. You're usually doing that after about two hours or so. And then you get to the end of the five hours where you get things like, that was that was a heroic repair. I deserve a Nobel Prize. Versus <laughs> turns to other possessions and says, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> it's not gone well. Uh, another great comic he's got, as a project wears on, uh, your standards for success slip lower and lower. So this is a start of a project that you're undertaking. Say it's zero hours, you're like, it might be, this is one I do quite a lot, it's installing Linux or trying to dual boot Linux. So he's got, okay, I should be able to dual boot Linux now. After six hours, still working on that same project. It's like, okay, I'll be happy if I can get the system working like it was when I started. After 10 hours, you get to, well, the desktop's a lost cause, but I think I can fix the problem. The laptop's developed, <laughs> so things are just getting progressively worse and worse. After 24 hours, he gets to, so they're in the middle of the ocean surrounded by sharks, and they're saying, if we're lucky, the sharks will stay away until we reach shallow water. <laughs> so it's just like you go on these projects, and they get worse and worse over time. I feel like uh, there's a reason my brother was the one to introduce me to XKCD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one, I think, if anyone's ever tried to install a custom ROM on an Android phone, that one will probably be familiar. Yeah. After 24 hours, you're in a far worse position. So that's XKCD. That's where Randall Munro started. And then so he's written this book, Thing Explainer. Um, so, yeah, complicated stuff in simple words. So it's brilliant. He describes very complicated things like nuclear reactors, tectonic plates, helicopters. But he can only use the 1,000 uh, most common words in the English language, kind of as defined by him. 
or the ten hundred most common words, as he calls it, because he can't use the word one. He can't use the word thousand. <laughs> so, for example, a nuclear reactor—that's a, a heavy metal power building. <laughs> a jet engine is a skyboat pusher. Uh, a helicopter is a skyboat with turning wings. Um, and this is one of my favourites. The large, had, large hadron collider is a big, tiny thing hitter. <laughs> So that's his description for these complicated topics in short terms. Um, so he goes into detail, detail on each of these. There's like one or two pages on each. There's loads of great illustrations. It's a little bit like those kind of how stuff works books that you used to get when you were a kid, like full of great illustrations detailing the innards of different things. And so there's a few things in there that we might see at a restart party as well. So he describes like uh, a phone, that's a hand computer, a microwave, which technically we shouldn't see at restart parties, but sometimes we do. That's a food heating radio box. Uh, <laughs> batteries are power boxes. Uh, cameras are picture takers. And then one of my favourites, that's a bending computer. Any guesses what that one is? <laughs> We've got a couple around <laughs> us right now, yeah. yeah. Laptops. That's a laptop. <laughs> And then, so he delves in each of these things, he goes inside and into the individual components. So within a, a computer, within a bending computer, we've got things like the thinking box and baby computers, which Wind is, th that's the <laughs> CPU and other microchips with inside. Um, there's thoughts right now, which is the, the memory, memory, the RAM. Thoughts right, right now. Thoughts right, 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 right now, yeah. <laughs> Holes for your other machines, which is self-explanatory. And probably my favourite, machines that fight change, which apparently is an inductor. I don't really understand what an inductor is, but I looked it up on Wikipedia and it was a lot easier to understand machines that fight change than the description that they had on Wikipedia. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I actually wanted to say that his book slightly reminds me of uh, Simple Wikipedia. I don't know if anybody's mm. ever uh, gone and looked at Simple.Wikipedia. It's, um, it's really difficult things explained... Simply. And it's a lot written by physicists, actually. Right. A lot of the best yeah. material in simple Wikipedia is by physicists. So. I think it's... I mean, that's what I really like about the book. First of all, it's really fun. Uh, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It does help you learn about these complicated things because you're reading the simple description and you're trying to figure out what is he actually talking about. Even if you already know how the things work, you're trying to figure out how his simple words map to the real description. And also, I think with repair and trying to pass on repair skills to others, being able to explain things in simple terminology is incredibly important. And that's something which I'd like to get better at as well. It's, I was installing uh, Linux on a friend's computer over the weekend, and I was trying to explain what I was doing as I went along. And I was saying, OK, right, now I'm going to change the operating system. And then I thought, what does that even mean, like an operating <laughs> yeah. system? Yeah. And I actually checked. So there's a cool tool that you can uh, run on the XKCD website, uh, xkcd.com uh, slash simple explainer, I think it is, um, where you can type in and, uh, and it will tell you whether you're using words that aren't in the 1,000 simplest words. So operating system is not in there. The word operating is not one of the simple words. Right. So I couldn't even refer to <laughs> something is an operating system so I think that's really that's what I really like about it. but if you want to learn about things it's cool but if you also want to like learn about how to describe things in simple terms if you're trying to pass those skills on to others it's yeah. cool for that as well so highly recommended yeah I saw it under the Christmas tree a couple of years ago and didn't get a chance to to read properly so I shall catch up this summer yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome to Restart Radio Show, a weekly show in Resonance 104.4 FM. We're talking about Restart's annual reading list. And right now, next book on our list is The Value of Everything by Mariana Matsukato. So Matsukato is the uh, chair in economics of innovation and public value in UCL, and she's the director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Um, so she definitely caught our eye with I didn't read the first book, which was super the entrepreneurial state, the entrepreneurial mm -hmm. state, which definitely caught our attention, our ear. And I believe she talks a lot about the yeah. iPhone and a lot of technology, how the state funded a lot of the technology that we think of being this great innovations by private companies. Yeah. So there's a lot of references to entrepreneurial state actually in this book also. So it's like this idea of mm -hmm. the narratives around government and industry in terms of funding and innovation and what we've come up with. So this idea of industry being the risk taker and coming up with all of the products, mm -hmm. whereas the government is kind of this boring body that just goes in to fix some stuff, but it's not innovative in itself or just doing the basic yeah. boring stuff. Yeah. But the title of this one really caught my attention. I have to say more than the entrepreneurial state, mm -hmm. um, as much as I want to think of civil servants as innovators. Um, <laughs> I, I just liked the, like, she really cuts straight to the question. And I think, you know, the value of everything. Um, it's, I, I, I listened to her, I listened to her give a talk at the LSC. Um, on, they have a great podcast that I occasionally listen to. And she basically said, yeah, after she presented this book, that pr in, from her perspective proved that the state contributes a lot to, um, to innovation, Everybody said to her, but the, who are the risk takers? But the risk takers, but the, the value creators, the risk takers, what they meant was the shareholders, the VCs, the, the, the financiers. Um, and she was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> There's many more people um, who are creating value in the economy. And she, just, she wanted to basically go rewind and unpack the whole idea of value. Um, What I thought was really interesting, and I, I'm only halfway through, disclaimer, and she spends <laughs> a lot of time, but I think it's really worthwhile time, t uh, talking about the, these economic theories and how they've shaped society. So she goes back and talks about, um, she goes even, she goes to even before um, Adam Smith about how v ideas behind value and were linked to agricultural production. And then she goes to Smith and Ricardo and Marx and the neoclassicals and all. It was, in a way, it was catharsis for me because I took a couple of econ classes at university. Did, did you guys take any? No, no. no. Well, my oh. dad is an economist, but not doesn't count. Oh, then it doesn't count. I did computer science. Yeah, so yeah, biochemistry. <laughs> no, please. Explain. But if you think about it, anyway, that should probably be part of the education of of, of these, right? Because uh, pharmacy, you might end up working in pharmaceuticals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You studying computer science might end up working um, for some of these um, supposedly value creating yeah. uh, companies. Yeah. The political um, economy behind science and tech. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway. I just I realized how brainwashed I was, even though I went to a fairly enlightened institution and they were, quote unquote, heterodox economists. In other words, people that don't conform with this very dominating view of how things uh, where value comes from. But I, I know I, I remember those moments in my one economics 101 class where they tried to convince us that, for example, employees buy and freely buy and sell their labor, you know, and they try to convince us of this idyllic. Um, economic situation where everybody's rational, and I and it, this is really good reminder that that thinking is 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 actually in a sense ideological, and mm. it shapes the world we live in extremely. Um, what were some of your impressions from reading this? Um, 
Yeah, so you were talking, like, you mentioned this value creators idea, right? Mm -hmm. So she introduces this concept from the beginning and she has this uh, image of a fence, right? And you have, like, the productive people or the value creators, but the then the value extractors, she right? Calls it. Yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I thought that was interesting. So, like, what's the difference between creating value, what's value in itself, what counts, and who mm -hmm. is extracting or making, like, the actual, like, profit like in a very yeah exaggerated way comparing to people actually creating i think he gives an example of gold mining and mm. there's this idea of like who is extracting the gold who is giving this labor to actually have this mineral and then who is making the profit from it yeah well so and she basically shows that that the economists who won out who basically rule every single economics department it seems around the world are the people who believe that value is only something that can be measured through price it's something that can be it's value is measured through price so things that are bought and sold have value yeah um and she goes and shows like all of the massive consequences of this decision and she also dips into some of my favorite stuff my some of the feminist economics that asks well wait a minute so you're saying that care work that's unpaid has no value yeah to the society um, and I think that's actually really related to some of the stuff we do, because if you and I, I've, I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit is like caring for things and caring for people um, are two potentially unpaid, uh, you know, value, potentially value creating activities or activities that should be valued. Um, yeah. And yeah, like even so I'm not saying that obviously caring for your laptop is as important as caring for a loved one. <laughs> but there are benefits, um, societal benefits. Yeah, and yeah. they're both very undervalued. Uh, and, you know, speaking more to maintenance of, of laptops and things like that, it's, that is often given kind of short shrift in comparison to innovation and you know, coming up with new yeah. phones and new devices versus maintaining existing yeah. technology and existing infrastructure. Maybe because it's not seen as something like generating profit. Like, we have, like how are we defining value? Like, is it only things... That, yeah, like economic, like, yeah, making profit, or is there an inherently more, like, yeah. larger or more comprehensive idea of what's value, what counts, what is contributing to our society well, yeah. or economy what, yeah. also in a larger way? Yeah. We have, um, we have like people who, you know, potential funders or people that are interested in our work who would like us to, to put a, to put a price on every single repair that we do for free in our community events called restart parties. Um, because they would like us to model um, or, or, or like cre basically model the shadow value that's but I in some way this is a really she opens up such an interesting conversation because she basically says like what the way you count things the way you account for things has huge consequences and so part of me thinks okay that might be interesting um, for in a certain situation but I wouldn't want to I, I don't want to be undermining the people who are selling the repair services. And I also don't want people to think in terms that yeah. value is only something that has a pound sign attached to it. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. There's massive amounts of value to repairing things, but it shouldn't necessarily be measured in economic terms. There's, there's yeah. so many other ways in which it's valuable. Yeah. The other thing that's really, she talks about, we, I didn't get there quite yet, but she talks about <laughs> the financialization of the real economy. And so this notion also that the moment you start counting something or counting it in a way or or value or putting a price on something it can, basically it can be packaged bought and sold traded the the financialization shell game begins so you know for example the financial crisis was caused in 2008 by you know these very dodgy packaging and reselling of of mortgages they were financialized um 
and it had me thinking a little bit about um, you know, how we've learned over the years that waste companies are not really in the business of collecting waste so much anymore. You know, the, the companies that, that come and get our municipal waste yeah. or that deal with the waste for the councils, that's the most visible thing they do. But what they're doing mostly behind the scenes is they've become commodities trading platforms. And, and that is, in a sense, really probably a, a larger part of their business and shaping their decisions around what they collect, what they want to keep. Um, so it's 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 even to the point where something is potentially as mundane as recycling or your household waste is 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 part of this huge financialized system where things only ha you know they have it, yeah basically where it's like a, I, I think of it as like a gigantic shell game um, and people are basically trying to figure out a little edge just by um, figuring out how to move things how to move things just make that little margin because she yeah. talks about the marginal um, mentality. But, and then we've seen how China, when China starts banning imports of, of materials, then they all have to race and adjust. But um, it does show that we're part of this global system where even something as small as the aluminum can that you threw away has been almost like financialized and turned into this massive tradable, movable commodity. Um, but on a positive note, just ending, um, yeah. she, does, she does talk about what, what we can change, basically. Um, so she talks about that we need to radically change our, our notion of value so that we can actually change the way we organize society. Is that, I think we'll probably have to invite her on our podcast. Yeah, that's sometime. always fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, moving on, we've got a, a really great book about bike repair. Yes. So Ellie from Restart recommended this book. It's um, How to Build Your Own Bike which basically talks about how anyone can build their bikes. And, well, um, I have some comments from, from Ellie. So basically, the author of this book is um, Jenny Wiatkowski. <laughs> She's the author of the, the founder, of, founder of the London Bike Kitchen, um, a bike repair workshops. And I'm going to play one of the main recordings, of, which explains why Ellie chose this book, really. So Jenny actually got me to kind of be the, be one of the people who sort of like geeky tech edited it for like, is it correct in terms of like the mechanical advice that's being given? Um, and I love I loved it straight away because it's there's really very few. You could kind of refer to this as a technical manual. You know, it's telling you how to do stage by stage processes of like to, to build something yourself. Um, and those kind of books are often so dry. You know, they don't feel like they're written by by humans for humans. And this one, that isn't the style that Jenny writes at all. Her personality comes through 100% in everything that she writes. Um, and she's, uh, you know, not your traditional bike mechanic. So, you know, she's uh, because she's a woman for a start. Um, and so and I think that really impacts on how the information is uh, given across and organized and how much it doesn't assume about its reader and how much. Yep. So we're almost uh, closing, but basically this book is great because it's a manual that is for everyone. And if you look at the pictures, you have all kinds of hands. You have women and men and black people and white people and everyone is allowed and is capable of uh, making and repairing and owning their stuff. Yeah, and no, it's, it's definitely uh, it's not your father's or grandfather's repair manual. So that's great. <laughs> Indeed. Um, the other books that we'll include on our reading list online, uh, we've talked about on this radio show earlier this year. Um, Isabel, do you want 
talk yes. about them real quick. Yes, so very quick. They're uh, Reassembling Rubbish by Joseph Lepowski and Derek uh, Wall's book on Eleanor Armstrong. The first one talks about electronic waste, where it goes, how we regulate it. And this kind of idea of, yeah, where, where are we shipping our electronic waste or where is it coming from? And the second one about Eleanor Armstrong and the Commons. Um, and they're both on our website and you can check previous podcasts on them. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can find out more about our work at theresearchproject.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Happy reading.